Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Vanessa Durantes was a recent college graduate when she was hired to be a social worker for the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. That was nearly three decades ago. Now Durantes is leading DCF as its commissioner. Today, Where We Live, we talk with her about her goals for the Child Protection Agency. She was appointed last year after being nominated by Governor Ned Lamont. Now, have you or your family had involvement with the State Department of Children and Families? Do you have a question for Commissioner Durantis? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome Commissioner Vanessa Durantis into our studio again. She leads the Connecticut Department of Children and Families, also known as DCF. Commissioner, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. This is the first time that I'm sitting down with you since you were appointed to uh, this position last year. I understand you grew up in Waterbury, again, started working for DCF as a recent college grad, so you're early 20s. Why did you pursue social work? I I like to say that social work pursued me. You know, that's not corny or cliche, (laughs) but, you know, this work is definitely one that's heart work as well as head work. And I've always found myself to be um, someone who wanted to help. And as I started to think about the professions that um, might be of interest to me, um, the department was undergoing the consent decree, which was um, a class action lawsuit related to the way we delivered our services. So I was one of the first in one of the first groups of social work class to be hired um, at the beginning of that decree. There's a lot of pressure on DCF to correct what, again, uh, that class action lawsuit claimed, again, with concerns about child protective services, also how you were meeting the needs of children and families, making sure that children weren't just put into foster care without looking at other alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's six commissioners ago. It is. Uh, What was it like coming into an agency that had a lot to prove? So at the time when you're, you know, 22 years old and eager to start your career, um, I don't know you recognize the enormity of that. But as I look back over three decades, um, that has been the kind of foundation of the work that we do. How do we continue to improve ourselves to make sure that kids and families get the best outcomes possible? And, the you know, the work itself is complex. And the attention that we give to our ability to do it well um, is important. And we have to continue to um, hold our to those standards um, and to make sure that we critically pay attention to everything that we do, all of our practices and policies. But I can say that in 1992, I don't know that I recognized the enormous responsibility that I had. Um, but today, looking back and along the way, I, I, I know what it takes to do this job. So pull back the curtain a little for us, Commissioner. As a starting as a social worker. Tell us what kind of work you were doing Mm -hmm. and then how you moved up the ranks, so to speak. So, you know, you're assigned a a caseload of families who have um, varying needs from um, 
the impact of substance use, untreated mental health issues, um, issues that kind of span uh, the, a person's ability to parent effectively or to keep a child safe. And so a young social worker would get um, requisite training. One of the things that the consent decree um, helped us to do is to really scale up our Academy for Workforce Development to make sure that when new staff come on board, there is a working test period that gives them not only classroom work, but um, work with um, uh, scenarios. So one of the interesting things that we do to prepare our social workers now is there are simulation labs where we have actually retrofitted apartments on the veterans campus with um, apartment-like settings. And um, we have contracted with FAVOR, the parent advocacy group, to um, be actors because they are mostly people that have had lived experiences. So it prepares our social workers really with hands-on, direct scenario-based training as to what they can expect when they interact with Mm -hmm. families in the community. We also have to learn how to work with um, community providers in that context. So if someone sees there, there's an issue uh, with a particular family, they may call <clears throat> this hotline, the care line, mm-hmm. and that opens up a, a case. You, you figure out if uh, it, it warrants having someone take a closer look. Mm-hmm. And so, again, walk us through how a social worker knows how to, besides this training, uh, go into a home and at times maybe have to deal with people who have a perception that if DCF comes into my house, they're going to take my kids. Yeah. So I do think that there um, are two schools of thought. One, that we don't act fast enough in certain situations, and others, that we may be um, removing children and disrupting families. Our Caroline took over 100,000 calls last year. um, And the the basic threshold for a call to our care line is reasonable suspicion of abuse or neglect. We take calls from the general public, but also mandated reporters. So over 60%, over half, come from mandated reporters, such as school personnel, hospital personnel. And they will call in the reasonable suspicion of abuse or neglect. Our care line folks are staffed, they're social workers as I was, um, with um, a response matrix. And they will have a structured decision making tool that will allow them to make some assessments as to the information that they're receiving and to determine, one, if it will be accepted, and then two, what the level of response will be. Is it a same-day response? Is it a response that has to happen within two, 24, or 72 hours? And so with that, there's structured decision-making related to the screening of calls that come in. Tell us how big your department is, Commissioner, when we hear again about this consent decree, this lawsuit filed back in 89, there was a court settlement, DCF is still under federal court oversight. But walk us through one of the main concerns was having enough social workers, making sure that they were not burdened by too many caseloads so that they weren't able to follow up. And so what is the sweet spot, so to speak, of having uh, so many caseworkers uh, or social workers to caseloads? So we have... Um, 3,200 staff members spread out over 14 area offices as well as our psychiatric hospital and um, private re- the partial residential uh, treatment facilities or PRTFs um, along with our wilderness school up at up in Heartland, Connecticut. So we're a pretty broad agency and we span across the whole state of Connecticut. Um, in those 14 area offices, those are considered our field offices. And in those, you will have the um, basic direct caseload carrying social workers. And 
and you correctly identified an area that was called out in the consent decree, and that was the percent of cases per worker. And for the first time in decades, Connecticut was able to pre-certify through our court monitors review the caseload measure um, standard, which um, made sure that our caseloads were under that 100% threshold across the state. So workers could have more quality assessments and the ability to be able to do their job with a reasonable caseload. And so we are, you know, now um, benefiting from the efforts that uh, we were able to obtain in this last fiscal year. And so how many more uh, social workers did you hire last year Mm -hmm. to get to that? So last year we were allocated um, about a new social work class of about 25 to 30 social workers for the first six months of last year. So we brought on board um, new workers, a new class of workers every month. And that that gave us the opportunity to be able to scale that up. Mm. Is that something that is sustainable when we think about the kind of uh, money that's allocated from the Connecticut General Assembly to your agency? I think so. You know, for me, I do believe that with the right balance of worker to caseload ratio, you actually start to see our caseloads go down. Within the last year, we did have a caseload reduction of about um, 6%. And that, to me, is a direct reflection of just the ability to focus on what you're responsible for, the cases you're assigned, and then the administrators that are responsible for overseeing the work to have a better handle on what it is that we have um, uh, allocated poor per worker. Uh, you're hearing Commissioner Vanessa Durantis, uh, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Children and Families here on Where We Live. If you have a question for the Commissioner, here's the number to call 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, we mentioned this uh, consent decree. One of the outcomes that DCF has finally been able uh, to reach is the having adequate number of staffing. But something that I believe is still a concern from the court monitor is DCF investigative practices and case planning. So what does that mean exactly? And and tell us what the issues that remain are. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that the court monitor paid attention to is first the quantity, and that just means the number of investigations per worker. And then if those cases were being completed, if those investigations were being completed within the 45-day requirement that statute requires. And then now he focuses on the quality of those investigations. I'm happy to report that some of the preliminary looks at those investigations look favorable on our part. But those are the things, those are the exact areas of practice that I believe um, the department can benefit from my leadership on. Because I, for the majority of my career, worked within investigations, um, that practice areas associated with a good investigation is something that's in my wheelhouse. And so um, we have focused a lot of attention on ensuring that our investigators have what they need. We just deployed technology, so they have tablets to to accompany them in the field. Um, Again, scaling up our um, uh, safety and risk assessment tools through structured decision-making and making sure that supervision is a priority to um, ensure that workers that are in the field are not making decisions alone. So the area of, of, of investigation quality is one that definitely gets our attention, along with case planning and making sure that children that are within our um, care have their needs met. And how do you know that you're meeting the needs? Something that the court monitor report brought up, I believe, last year was that uh, there were still issues with making sure sure that your clients, whether they be children or the families, are getting specific services. Say there is substance abuse in the home and making sure that those services are being connected. So tell us about how that's been improved. So it's really using data to help tell the story. 
you know, understanding whether or not children and families are better off as a result of our intervention. It's working closely with our provider partners, and it's really having that regular conversation with them about how families are doing. No longer is it um, acceptable just to refer a family for a service and move on to the next case. You're having a regular dialogue with that service provider about um, what it is that they're doing with the family, and then you're having those same conversations with the family that's being served early on with parents to say, what is it that will look like to um, help us understand that things look better or that the crisis that brought the family to our attention has been mitigated? Again, you're hearing Vanessa Durantis, the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Children and Families here on Where We Live. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation, and we want to hear from you. Have you or your family had involvement with the State Department of Children and Families? You can join us 888-720-9677. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today is Vanessa Durantes, Commissioner of the State Department of Children and Families, or DCF. Do you have a question for the commissioner about the Child Protection Agency? Maybe you're one of the foster families that DCF works with. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, commissioner Durantes, we talked earlier about your care line, and I wanted to maybe dive deeper into what abuse and neglect are. And when you as an agency decide to move forward, uh, I want to couch that with news over the last year about uh, school employees Mm -hmm. that have been arrested and uh, allegations dealing with abuse. I'm thinking about the New London Public Schools District, an investigation spurred on by the arrest of a former school employee uh, who had been charged with sexually assaulting two middle school girls in his office and in a school storage closet. That was according to court records late last year. After this particular individual was arrested, two other former employees were arrested, again, within the New London Public School System, charged with failing to report alleged relationships with students. Uh, When we hear these stories, we wonder how this happens to children. Mm -hmm. So talk about when DCF gets involved and where you see maybe schools need to do a better job in reporting to you. So one of the first groups um, that I met with upon taking this position was um, school superintendents and the um, uh, attorneys who represent school employees. Because as you might imagine, because of the situations that you just described, there's um, a concern amongst educators, um, one, related to the failure to report issue, and then two, um, you know, protecting their livelihood. And one of the things that I said immediately upon meeting with those groups is that we are all in the business of protecting children. We are all in the children business. And so how do we, one, weed out the bad actors within the profession and people who were doing things that um, resulted in poor outcomes for kids and families and really truly focus in on our responsibility, our community responsibility to ensure that kids are safe. And so we immediately started to think about how we could recalibrate our relationships with school systems to one, 
make sure that school teachers and professionals who work in educational settings know the warning signs and know how to access our mandated reporter training portal, that they have that and they have connections to their local DCF offices to ask questions um, and to really help them understand the definitions related to abuse or neglect and to um, not overreact to the point that they were just kind of, um, you know, you know, making reports to cover themselves as opposed to really having a reasonable suspicion of abuse or neglect. We also dedicated an educational response or educational professionals unit, which just got stood up actually this month. So over the last few months, we've been designing what that would look like. And that is um, identifying specific investigators who will work across the state dedicated to one centralized point to conduct school investigations. And that, we believe, will create a more seamless transition between the investigation and getting um, a person assessed as to whether or not they have uh, abused or neglected a child in their professional capacity. Uh, and, and we're excited to be able to have worked in partnership with um, State Department of Education to make that happen. I'm glad you brought that agency up because I was curious how uh, DCF sees this issue in terms of are their hands tied, so to speak, that once you get a call, your staff can act, but you have to then get that call or that That's report right. first. And so does the Connecticut Department of Education, from your perspective as leading DCF, are they sending enough uh, training or message to individual school districts mm-hmm. to, that they need to strengthen this process? So again, um, Governor Lamont has made it a priority that state agencies work collectively with each other. And Commissioner Cardona and I speak regularly about things that um, overlap in terms of our respective responsibilities. We jointly sent a memo out last week related to this educational professionals unit. Um, we've also stood up a um, online portal in which educators can submit a report online to our care line as long as it's not an emergency situation. So um, of the calls that have been uh, not coming in through the call portal, but through the online portal, very few have uh, crossed the threshold that should have been an emergency. But we have someone that staffs those uh, reports, so we still were able to get someone out. And that has, one, significantly reduced wait times, but also given educators another avenue by which to contact the care line. Before we take some calls, and you can join us too if you have a question for DCF Commissioner Vanessa Durantes, that number 888-720-9677. But a little bit more from you, Commissioner, in terms of something that the child advocate, uh, Sarah Egan, when she was looking into the new London schools uh, case, she wrote, it is essential that communities appreciate that child sexual abuse is both more prevalent and less likely to be reported than people may realize. So when should somebody step forward? How did, when you say uh, some of the calls that came through uh, were not something that needed to move forward, to, to help people understand, like, yeah. when is something really problematic and they should uh, step up and, and help a child? So that reasonable suspicion of abuse and neglect does fall into kind of a, a gray area. That's why communication with your local DCF office, communication between school personnel, law enforcement, and our community providers is essential. If people have questions as to whether or not something rises to the threshold of abuse or neglect, they can access the DCF website at DCF. Um, ct.gov or you can contact your local DCF office and they can step you through individual mm-hmm. conversations about situations that you may um, be concerned about. Spencer's calling in. Spencer, what's your question for the commissioner? Yes, I'd like to inquire about the caseworkers and the sorts of loads that they carry. How many cases 
do they have do they have uh, some primary, some secondary, so that people can spell them if they're ill or on vacation? And then also, what are the measures of success for the caseworker? That's a great question, Spencer. Thank you for that. Our caseloads are weighted based on the um, the number of, of children within a household, whether or not the children are um, at home or in out-of-home placements. And so we have a calculation that keeps a social worker under 100%. And when I um, talked about the um, caseload standards having been met, that's the percentage of social workers that are now below that 100% threshold. When you talk about measures of success and whether or not um, there's a measurement of um, you know when it's time for a case either to be closed or to be uh, transferred from one worker to another, again, structured decision-making tools give us guidance around those types of um, decisions. However, critical thinking and problem-solving are the responsibility of the supervisors, program supervisors, and office directors within a particular um uh, field office. Is staff turnover an issue while you're bringing on new social workers and, again, being uh, credited from this court monitor that there are now sufficient staff to handle uh, caseloads? What's the churn like for this type of job? Yeah, so Connecticut is fortunate to have a lower attrition rate. Um, it's pretty high in the field, up over 40% across the country. Um, in Connecticut, we're much lower than that, and we are looking to stabilize our social work workforce and we believe having adequate caseload standards gets us on our way to being able to do that. It is estimated across the country that you can you can spend up to $50,000 in training of a new social worker. So one, from a fiscal responsibility, it's important for us to retain staff members. But also you want to make sure that um, a social worker that's coming into Child Protective Services has the right fit for this job. And, um, you know, sometimes that attrition has to do with whether or not um, once a worker comes in that they recognize the intensity and complexity of their expectations. The Connecticut Mirror reported uh, under DCF, I think under your predecessor, Joette Katz, the agency has really focused on placing children with family and, and again, avoiding congregate care. Uh, DCF was putting 500 fewer kids in foster care each year, Mm -hmm. uh, but there were also high-profile child deaths during this time period. Uh, 17 children uh, have died uh, because of neglect or abuse between 2012 and 2015. And so how does DCF address uh, those issues that have come up to make sure that this is a right fit uh, for a child who may not be able to stay with their parents, But if there are other issues in uh, homes of relatives that you can keep those numbers low. Mm -hmm. So for us, first and foremost, it's our responsibility to assess whether or not children can remain at home safely. And if they can't remain at home safely, that they be placed with someone that they know, so a relative or kin. And you're right that my predecessor and the administration that was in place for about a decade um, took tremendous strides in um, increasing the number of children who were placed with relatives. We have sustained that and have about 45 percent of our children who are in out-of-home care with relatives or someone that they know. The other piece that the previous administration set into motion was returning children from out-of-state care. So you can 
maintain those familial bonds because they are closer and in the state of Connecticut with our strong uh, service provider network. The other thing that um, is important for children is that if they cannot be with someone that they know, that they be in a family. And so in Connecticut, 90% of our children that are in out-of-home care are in family settings and not in congregate settings. And you are absolutely right that our first and foremost is the focus on child safety. And so um, any child fatality that we've had involvement with undergoes um, a really strict uh, review to determine if the quality standards of the work that's delivered was delivered to the standards that we expect. And um, we are constantly reviewing our uh, practice and our policies to ensure that the expectation that we have for our social workers that are working directly with families have the tools they need to make adequate safety assessments. This goes into our caller's question about how you deem uh, success, uh, successful outcomes when something happens where a child dies. What is the ramifications for the, the, the employees involved in that particular case? Mm-hmm. So, you know, each individual case is different. Um, and, of course, a child fatality is the worst possible outcome. But I will tell you that in the time that I've been in this seat and in the cases that I've reviewed, even when you have have the worst possible outcome. And I look at the practice associated with that case. If I see sound practice, then outcomes will occur because we are in a human services uh, field. But I do recognize that there are opportunities for our work to be reviewed and evaluated, and I expect us to be just as accountable as everyone else. Um, You you know, when you think about the response to a child fatality or you think about um, the response to, say, um, crime, it is not expected that no crime will occur. It is expected that the, the systems that are responsible for child safety critically evaluate the practices and policies that we have in place to, one, make sure that they were adhered to. And if they were not, we have a human resources structure that can follow up and determine the level of consequence for those workers if that's necessary, and a level of consequence beyond the worker level that may um, indicate that there was some um, Uh, someone that had fallen short of their duties. But it is the expectation that we have um, caseload standards that allow for um, the adherence to our practice and policies. Do you have enough foster families in the state of Connecticut? So one of the um, expectations uh, related to the aspirational goals is we would have 2.5 beds available for every child to come into care so we could make better matches with um, foster parents and children that we have uh, entering foster care. Um, we have a significant partnership with the Connecticut Association of Foster and Adoptive Families. There are liaisons in every single one of our offices that help create that bridge between the DCF caseworker case and um, our foster families. And we could always use more. It's important for children to remain, if not when they're in families, to remain in in communities that they know. Um, Because you can imagine bouncing from school to school also creates disruption in a child's life. You mentioned efforts to use technology to help your social workers do their jobs, but in terms of connecting with foster families, is Mm -hmm. there an over-reliance on uh, hard paper copies of forms that they must fill out? How are you modernizing uh, that process uh, to make it easier for foster families uh, to get the information that you need uh, that they can file that Mm -hmm. in a quick, easy way. That's a good point because we are um, in the process right now of changing our foster care infrastructure 
infrastructure. We've just identified um, a foster care lead for the entire agency and really centralizing um, those functions. You know, one of the things that the transition team that we worked with talked about was um, the consistency of our practice across our 14 area offices. And that would, for me, also extend to um, our relationships with our foster families and making sure that we include them more in our case planning and really not view them as just a place where a child lays their head. Mm -hmm. Foster parents are an integral part of making sure that kids get their needs met, and we have to do a better job at partnering with them as well. You're hearing Commissioner Vanessa Durantis on in our studios on Where We Live. Again, she leads the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Meg's calling from Plainville. Meg, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, first and foremost, I want to commend the commissioner. I, um, I've been a social worker in the field for about 20 years now, um, and I've seen the improvements that you've described uh, firsthand through my work, but also recently had an experience um, as a kinship foster placement. Um, and it was a very humbling experience for my husband and I. And um, we got to really feel what it's like to be on the other side. Um, so going from the professional side to the personal side, I just wanted to make um, a recommendation um, because where we struggled most was with not having in-home support for us right from the start. So there were so many positives about our experience, particularly with the Waterbury office. Um, they were phenomenal um, with helping us and the children navigate the system and, and getting what we needed. Um, but emotionally, the children were obviously distraught. And because we're kinship, I think we were experiencing our own related to the situation and the children um, could have used and we could have used some more support right off the bat um, but otherwise again I see the um, improvements and I wanted to say thank you so much Thank you for your call, Meg. So getting services, that in-home mm -hmm. service that Meg had mentioned, and she kept, she was a kinship family, so somebody mm -hmm. in her family that she was then uh, mm -hmm. adopting or fostering a child. Meg just hit the nail on the head. I do believe that um, some of the things that we've learned from scaling up our kinship and relative placements are exactly as she described, because I think um, as a field of practice across the country, as we increased kinship and relative providers, we didn't think of the ramifications of what the family dynamic um, changes occur with a kinship placement because, you know, one minute you hold the responsibility of, say, grandma or auntie, and the next minute you're providing day-to-day -day care for your relative. And I, I think for us as a system, um, we were very appreciative of relatives that stepped forward or that we contacted and said yes and kind of then moved on to the next case. Um, obviously not that simple, but what Meg is describing is the in-home supports that, um, you know, we do have at least one provider that uh, provides some support services to our kinship families. But one of the things nationally that has been recognized through Family First Prevention Services Act is the need for what are called kinship navigators. And as Connecticut develops its prevention plan that focuses some of the attention um, further upstream, one piece of that is also really looking at our relative practice because um, it is uh, difficult for a family to shift the role structure, the um, 
interactions with a, a state agency. And she's absolutely right when she talks about um, the role of a professional working with DCF and then being on the other side of it as kind of the recipient of um, trying to navigate services for that child who is experiencing the trauma of removal from their biological parent. And, you know, by reducing that and staying within relatives or with people that they know, there um, are better outcomes, but we can certainly do a better job of partnering with relatives to make sure they have what they need in order for the child's life to be stable and for them to feel supported as well. Uh, Patricia is calling from Weathersfield. Patricia, what's your question for Commissioner Durantis? Uh, my question is, if the department is tracking their efforts to keep the children in foster care, how are they tracking that the kids are not jumping from foster home to foster home mm-hmm. um, because of their emotional needs or because it's not a good match? What are they doing to track that and prevent that from happening? That's a great question, Patricia. And I do think the stability of foster placements is another area of focus as we um, restructure our foster uh, care services. Uh, we know that uh, every time a child has to be moved, that um, there's a, an interrupted attachment or disrupted stability for a child. We hear repeatedly from children who um, age out of care or are young adults that one of the things that um, impacted their identity development, their ability to have um, Uh, positive relationships is that instability from place to place. So in reference to that kind of 2.5 home um, per child availability and our increase in um, relative or kinship care, it's to really get to that issue of making the right match and trying to eliminate the barriers to a child's success or stability with maintaining that particular home. The other piece that I would add to the equation is that we have also increased our focus on um, permanency because while Connecticut leads the country in a lot of areas or in the top of uh, many jurisdictions because of those efforts that we talked about. Um, The area that we don't do as well is uh, moving to permanency faster. So children are not spending a day longer in out-of-home placements than uh, necessary. And so we are working with our court partners and community providers to develop case plans that help move our kids through systems to legal permanency, whether that's reunification with their parent transfer of guardianship to a relative or kin, or adoption. Heather's calling from Rocky Hill. Heather, we just have a few minutes left. What's your question? Hi, um, my name is Heather. Um, My husband and I, a few months ago, we um, made the decision that we wanted to be foster parents, Um, but we quickly learned that the process to become licensed was so burdensome. Um, There were classes that we had to attend um, every evening for, I think, four or five months, um, you know, they started at 5 o'clock in the evening. We were told if we missed, you know, more than one, we wouldn't be able to complete the process. Um, we really, you know, we went through the preliminary process, and, and we really would have been excellent foster parents. But because there was no flexibility at all in that licensure process, we just weren't, we knew there was no way we could do it. Um, and, you know, I understand you want your standards to be very high for, for foster families, of course, but I'm just wondering um, if you guys have taken a look at the fact that it's incredibly difficult for, you know, a middle-class working family where maybe a parent is on call 
um, to, to actually complete that process and become a foster family? A great question, Heather. Commissioner. Yeah, th- Heather, you actually point out a fact that um, we have tried to tackle along with um, some other states across um, New England, and that is the time it takes from the interest in becoming a foster parent to actually fulfilling the licensure process. And so um, Connecticut has piloted what we are calling um, an expedited process. We actually had um, six sessions of what we deemed weekend for a lifetime, where we did a bunch of the background check and um, preliminary checks up front. And then families actually came in for a weekend and did the, the modules. And so we are in the process of comparing the retention rate of those foster parents with those that underwent the um, more lengthy process of becoming licensed to determine if there is a goodness of fit with expediting the licensure process to ensure, one, as Heather indicated, that we have um, a good assessment of people who are stepping forward um, to become foster families, but then also if the process itself can be streamlined. And so we are um, really excited about the advances and what we've learned from the Weekend of a Lifetime uh, uh, pilots. What happens to your, the children under DCF care who age out of foster care. Mm-hmm. They age out of the system, but they still have uh, you know, services or needs that need to be addressed. Is DCF doing enough to, to help them transition? Right. So I, I can answer that in a couple of ways. Our Transitioning Youth for Success is the next area that the department is also tackling in terms of our infrastructure and, ter- and service delivery. This is an area that I you know coin um, Maya Angelou, the great poet, is one once you know better, you must do better. And so for long, for a long time, um, people viewed adolescent services as, or the field viewed adolescent services as um, a way to help kids towards independent living. And that we know that none of us live in this world independently. You know, I was sharing with Lucy that I am um, a recent empty nester. And, you know, when I think about the needs of my own 18-year-olds, and I think about the children and families, or the children that come into our care, um, those some of those needs are compounded. And so we are really, we've identified a statewide adolescent services lead to really look at our structures and how we um, service adolescents. We did a um, structured recruitment campaign for foster parents specifically trained on the needs of adolescents and teenagers. And we've, you know, kind of moved away from that independent living area to start to help children rebuild the relationships of youth and of adults in their lives that can be with them for the long haul. Because you're right. Children that have experiences with the child welfare system are more likely to transition to homelessness, incarceration, or um, to poor outcomes. And we want to make sure that children that transition from us in Connecticut have vocational expectations, have educational connections, and have supports that will um, traject- will give, give them a positive trajectory into the next areas of their life. So yet more to come, lots mm-hmm. of work to do, and another area of focus for us. Uh, Before I let you go, Commissioner, I I understand that uh, before you became commissioner of the agency, you were chair of DCF's Racial Justice Working Group. Tell me about, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time, but when we think about uh, people who deal with systemic racism and it it, um, causes challenges in their lives, are these also families that end up having some interaction with DCF? And and how do you uh, work through that uh, when you're you're trying to help uh, families in Connecticut? So, Lucy, I'd love to 
come back and do an entire segment on our racial justice work. As Connecticut's first African-American commissioner, I recognize the importance of eradicating disproportionality and disparity amongst children and families of color. Unfortunately, across the country, this is a phenomenon that is within the child welfare system that we recognize black and brown families do not abuse or neglect their children at any higher rate than their white counterparts, yet they're more represented at each decision-making point. And so we as systems have to critically look at our at our practices as it relates to race, as it relates to engagement. And we also have to work with in partnership with our stakeholder community providers to ensure that when we're working with children and families of color, we have um, processes and um, curricula that um, really address the needs of diverse populations. And the more we can communicate with our, our communities and understand that cultural humility or the ability to understand differences amongst races and the way that we deliver our services and the way that we are perceived, the better outcomes there will be for kids and families. So that's an area of focus that um, we at DCF have developed a lot of um, internal mechanisms and have extended beyond our our, our walls. Um, our statewide racial justice work group is developing and um, is one of the strongest that it's been in a while. We have um, community partners and stakeholders that also sit on that particular work group to address that issue head on. Last year, statutorily, we also were able to codify our racial justice work in Connecticut statute, so it's not going away. Well, we'd love to have you back again, Commissioner Vanessa Durantes, who leads the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. Uh, we'll extend another invitation to you. Hopefully, you can come back in a few months. We appreciate your time. That would be great, Lucy. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to get some analysis from a reporter who's covered DCF for a number of years. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from the Commissioner of the State Department and Children and Families. And I wanted to get some perspective from Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, who has covered DCF uh, for several years, including when Joette Katz was the commissioner. Uh, Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. This is my first time sitting down with Commissioner Durantes. I know you've also spoken with her. She's someone who came up uh, through the DCF system to lead uh, the agency, again, appointed last year. Uh, Talk about what you've heard from uh, staff and people in the community about uh, her leadership of this agency. So what I've heard is that she has a, a laser-like focus on the casework and what the what the actual people in the field are actually able to accomplish and making sure that it's a reasonable caseload and that people are able to accomplish sort of this these Herculean tasks of connecting families with the services that they need. Uh, what was your uh, take on how she answered uh, some of the questions about the, the issues that still remain, including investigative practices and, and case planning? Sure. So when I sat down with her, she mentioned that when she started at the agency, she had 56 cases. And today it's about 12 people uh, or sorry, about 12 cases that each individual social worker has. And that fluctuates based on the severity of, of the caseload and that, that people are dealing with. And so what she has in front of her is how to now find the services for those individuals. And so, you know, every six months or so, the court monitor comes out with a report and, and outline what the needs are of students or of students of children in the foster care system and whether or not they're getting those th that the care that they require and 
what he found during her first six months was that children, by and large, are getting more of the services that they require. Um, you know, of the cases that he reviewed, though, there were still 325 unmet needs, meaning that in the sample that he had, he had things like parent visitations weren't always happening, child counseling setup wasn't always happening, dental screenings. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to be done, but the trajectory seems to be headed in the right direction. And the foundation of that is having the social workers to do that work. And for the first time in the 30 years of this, of Connecticut being under this consent order, they have met the caseload standards, meaning that they have been able to make sure that staff have the capacity mm-hmm. to connect kids with their counseling, the parents with the substance abuse treatment. Um, now the question is whether or not there are services available at the other end and, and making sure that those services are in place. Is Commissioner Durantes, is she an effective collaborator? Again, her predecessor, Joette Katz, gets a lot of credit for some of these reforms that have helped to have fewer children in foster care, fewer children in congregate care. Uh, but she was not, Joette Katz was someone who bumped heads with legislators. Uh, and I'm just curious what that relationship is with Commissioner Durantes. So there's always a honeymoon period. Um, and, you know, Katz enjoyed that as well for her first year. And then, you know, as tough decisions started to be need to be made, um, like needing to get social workers, there was this epic battle that that Joette Katz had with the legislature in securing funding for social workers. And there was an agreement that was made um, with the parties outside of court and the legislature rejected it. Um, and, you know, it was a Democratic controlled legislature rejecting a negotiated agreement between the Democratic-controlled administration. And so that sort of highlighted that tension that existed there. Um, You know, there was concerns. I don't know if the issue is necessarily with the um, hiring of social workers, but rather with an order telling them we must spend this much. Um, And so there was, you know, that underlying tension. But I think there's always a honeymoon period to answer your question. And and we'll see, you know, two, three years in if if that remains. Uh, Connecticut gets a lot of attention uh, for this, again, these reforms that have taken place, uh, placing children with families, keeping them out uh, of foster care, these congregate homes. This is now a model that the federal government is awarding through funding. Right. So the federal government, they have, and President Trump signed into place back in 2018, this act called the Family First Act. And it gives Connecticut this awesome ability to sort of rethink how services are provided. So historically, federal funding has gone to fund things like adoption and foster care. um, And now it's going to be allowed to be spent on preventative measures. So getting families the substance abuse treatment that they might need or the mental health services that they need so that their kids don't need to enter foster care. and also prohibit the use of congregate care with the extent with with some extreme circumstances if it's someone who is um, you know a sex trafficking victim someone who has is pregnant so certain circumstances still will warrant congregate care um, but this idea that that we need to shift in the direction of not having kids in in congregate care um, back in 2011 when Joette Katz entered. Um, as the the chief for the foster care system in Connecticut, one in four kids were in or in congregate care settings. Today, about one in ten kids are in congregate care settings, and that's a huge leap that we've done as a state. Um, but in real numbers, it means that 294 kids on any given day are in congregate care mm-hmm. facilities, meaning that they have shift workers caring for them. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same person who puts them to bed and, and wakes them up in the morning. So. Um, this idea of the best practices is not to have congregate care. Um, Connecticut is um, 
currently moving in the direction to set up a plan to have this family first model to shift funding. Um, but they are going to be one of the late adopters. They're, um, they're planning on rolling it out by 2021. And we mentioned congregate care. So there's specific group homes that these children live in. Right. Yeah. So there, there's congregate care facilities around the state of Connecticut that really take in um, these children when the, there aren't enough foster homes or if they have such specialized treatment um, that they need su- this this type of specialized care. Um, I should mention that doing this shift is going to be incredibly hard. The number Finding the number of foster care families. Um, I heard some of the callers who called in and talked about some of the barriers in becoming a foster family. Um, the number of licensed foster care homes in the state of Connecticut between 2018 and 2019 dropped by 17 percent. That means there's 500 fewer foster homes in Connecticut um, for families, for kids, as there's been that sort of this um, gradual decrease in the number of kids entering the foster care system. There's been a much faster decline and the number of foster homes to take mm-hmm. them in. So that's a challenge uh, before Commissioner Vanessa Durantis, again, of the Department of Children and Families. Uh, before we, we end, uh, Jackie, I spent some time asking the commissioner about how uh, you know, DCF responds to these Caroline, uh, again, claims of neglect and abuse uh, coming from mandated reporters, uh, problems when we look at uh, the New London School District, for example, of uh, employees uh, that are abusing uh, children. And I'm just wondering, what your thoughts are on how DCF works, again, with uh, other agencies like the Department of Education and really trying to train mandated reporters about uh, what they need to do uh, to help children? Sure. So, so Caroline, their number one call that they get are from school staff. So they, they, let's not forget that a lot of school staff are calling in and making these mandated reports. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, there have been examples where there people have really missed the, missed the ball on this. Um, you know, I remember back in 2010, a similar report from the child advocate saying that we're not doing what we need to do. And it teamed up with the attorney general's office at the time of saying, like, people aren't running names by the the DCF registry when they hire people. They're not doing background checks, all of these things. Fast forward 10 years, similar report. Um, And so a a few things come to mind with that, um, you know, require that people run their names by the DCF registry. Background checks have become increasingly expensive for schools and daycares and and the like to be able to do those. Uh, You know, five or six years ago, it was like $50 a person for a background check. And now today it's like $85. Um, So it's it's increasingly expensive to do those sort of best practices to make sure the people in your school are actually – the best people in your school. Mm. Is this something that, is there any uh, movement within the the General Assembly uh, to address this issue again, because there are so many towns and cities uh, that their school boards are are in charge of these policies? Um, So I haven't seen anything in regards to schools this legislative session. There is some legislation for camps. So summer camps requiring the background checks be done. But again, they're really expensive to do these background checks um, and their durational staff. Um, so you know, sort of these one-time costs to hire someone for seven or eight weeks um, is really burdensome for a camp. So you have to keep in mind sort of the, the ebb and flow or sort of the, the tension that exists there. I'm going to thank Jacqueline Rabe Thomas for coming in again, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. It's always a pleasure to, do, to talk with you, Jackie. Thanks for having me. That's today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Just to download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.